You can understand meditation practice as an investigation of who we are. It's an investigation of our bodies through attention to the breath, through attention to movement, through attention to sensations in the body. It's an investigation of our minds through awareness of thoughts, feelings of emotions, an investigation of awareness itself. It's also an investigation of silence. My first Dharma teacher, Manindraji, gave a talk on 21 different kinds of silence. And so we begin to drop into deeper and deeper levels of what silence of mind means. Now in this exploration of ourselves, what we discover is that although our personal stories are all quite different, we have different backgrounds, different family situations, our personal stories are different, but the nature of this heart, mind, body is the same in all of us. You know, pain and pleasure in the body, Sadness, anger, fear, joy, happiness, suffering, freedom. These are all common in all human beings. They're common to us all. And not only are they common to us all now, it's the same now as it was in the time of the Buddha. The characteristics or the qualities of the mind and heart, the nature of the body is the same. And for this reason... The Dharma is called timeless. The power and the clarity of the Buddhist teaching lay in his deep understanding of, we could call it natural law, which is, which is a translation of the word Dharma. Now just the, the law of things of how the mind and body work. And so for us, it's not a question simply of believing what he taught. It's not a question of blind belief. It's not a question of dogma. All of the teachings that are presented are offered as an invitation for us to look for ourselves, to investigate for ourselves. When I first went to India to practice, one of the first things that Munindraji said to me, and it really is kind of the feeling or the, the quality that so inspired me in my practice, he said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That's all. There was no, nothing to join, and there was no set of beliefs to ascribe to. It was just the most common sense statement. If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. How else could we understand our minds? So it's so simple and so pragmatic. One way of understanding, we could almost say the meaning of Dharma, is that of it being a science of the mind. 
we can begin to understand the lawful qualities of the mind. And we can understand meditation practices and all the, all the methods of meditation practices as tools for this scientific investigation. So even though our experience is subjective, still the results of this exploration is replicable. Anybody who practices mindfulness, awareness, attentiveness will discover the same things. All the methods that we develop are for the purpose of seeing more clearly, more precisely, more deeply. We're refining the skills of observation. We begin to see that our lives are not unfolding by chance. They're not unfolding haphazardly. There are certain laws of nature that are at work. And one of the most important of these laws in terms of understanding the possibility for us to be happy is the law of cause and effect. So this is easy to see and understand in the physical world. Science, a good part of science, is based on this law. And so when, whether you look at physics or chemistry or biology or the mind-body interface, a lot of it has to do with the law of cause and effect. Do this, this happens. We can see this law at work in the world around us, and there are many everyday examples of this. So just as one example, not always an encouraging one, you know, when we look around and we see the pollution of the environment. That's a cause. There are effects of doing that. You know, we see it in terms of global warming. We see it in terms of toxic wastes. It has effects on our health, on our well-being, on our welfare, of the welfare of the whole planet. There's a cause and effect relationship. Likewise, if we clean up the environment, that has an effect, that has a result. So just like there are physical laws in nature, the Buddha pointed out that there are also these laws of cause and effect in the mind. And he called this, he called this, as you know, the law of karma, which most simply means that actions have consequences. It's interesting that the word karma is slowly making its way into English you know, and it just pops up over and over again. I was just reading in last Sunday uh, Times book review section. It was a review of a book. It was actually a couple of books um, on the current debate, you know, in certain circles in this country on state-sponsored torture, you know, and I'm not quite sure what the debate is, but... The <laughs> the <laughs> There was a review of these books, and in the review it said, this is just the reviewer, you know, but surely torture is, in the long run, bad karma for the United States. <laughs> you know, and so it was just, you know, the, the notion of karma 
is just making its way into into our popular culture. The the understanding that actions have consequences. Buddha took this a step further and he made one very important further clarification of this understanding, which is essential for us in our understanding of our own minds and the unfolding of our lives. And that is, he said, what most completely determines the result of an action is the motivation behind it. So this is very important. What most completely determines the result of an action is the motivation that's prompting the action. And so this teaching is summed up in this one very succinct line, which I've taken really as a meditative reflection uh, for many years now, which says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So motivation is key in our understanding of our own lives, our minds, how things are unfolding for us. And it's not difficult to understand this. You know, if we act motivated frequently by greed, you know, or by fear, or by anger, or by hatred, that becomes the world in which we live. We're creating the world within ourselves and around us. And it's not a particularly happy one. If we practice, if we cultivate, if we act motivated over and over again, motivated by kindness, by compassion, by wisdom, by awareness. So that's the environment, both inner and outer, that we're living in. It seems straightforward enough. You know, this doesn't seem so hard to understand. But the problem is, we don't often look at our motivations in a very precise and careful way. Perhaps because we think that they're mostly all skillful and think, well, I don't really need to bother. I'm basically a good person and therefore all my motivations are wholesome. So that may be one reason we don't really pay careful attention. Or when we do look, and we do have the inspiration and interest to say, it's sometimes confusing because we can have mixed motivations or a conflict of motives or a series you know, of different ones. Of course, it's interesting for each one of us to, to look and see how this plays out in our lives. But I had one very striking uh, illumination about this and this goes back years, and some of you probably heard this story. It was back in my years in India when I was practicing, um, really when I first went there. And as you know, you know there are many, many uh, beggars in India. And just being a Westerner, no matter how little money we had, it was still much more you know, than many of these beggars had. So it was a reality that we needed to 
just deal with in one way or another, relate to one way or another. The one time, and I was there just, you know, I was quite young. I had very, very little money. I was really subsistence living. Uh, but I was in the bazaar, the local market, uh, buying some fruit. And <clears throat> this little Indian beggar boy comes up, you know, just holding out his hand. Without any thought, in a very spontaneous way, I just gave him some oranges. It didn't seem like a very big deal. It was just just the moment response. But then what happened was very striking. He just walked away. There was no smile, there was no nod, there was no anything. Just no response at all. And what it illuminated for me was the fact that on some level, it's not that I was expecting profusive thanks. It was just an orange or two. But I didn't realize that I was holding some expectation of something back. You know, just some moment of connectedness. And so when there was nothing, I really saw a part of my own motivation that I had not even seen. You know, and I didn't know was there. So sometimes it gets very subtle. You know, we think we know what our basic motive is, of friendliness or generosity or kindness, but sometimes... There are other things mixed in as well. It's very instructive just to look, to to look carefully, you know, to uncover these different aspects. And this takes a certain willingness, it takes a certain honesty, sometimes even courage, because sometimes what we see is not all that wonderful. You know, there's so much said in our culture, especially kind of a new age, new age aspect of it, uh, in terms of following our hearts. You know, we should follow our heart, which often is a good idea. But Ajahn Sumedho, who's an American monk in the Thai tradition, one of the elders, he put it quite differently. He said, it's not so much about following our hearts. It's about training our hearts. And I thought that really captures it. Because when we pay attention in a careful, in a systematic way, we see that not everything in our heart is skillful or wholesome. There's a lot of impulses that come up. And now what we really need to do is to train our hearts, to train it in the skillful, to train it in the wholesome. And so all the forms, all the techniques, all the methods that we use in practice all has to do with this training. It's the training of our minds, the training of our hearts. You know, and as many of you know, even though in English these are two different words, in many Asian languages the word for mind and heart is the same. And so when you hear either of them, you should think both. Right? It's really the mind-heart. It's that awareness which contains everything. So what are some of these tools of training? What are some of the methods that we use to train the mind? 
The first is using the simplicity of the form of the retreat, namely sitting and walking. How do you know what to be doing? When you finish sitting, walk. When you finish walking, sit. And so the day just becomes this rhythm of sitting and walking. That's the form with, you know, a few times for eating and some other essentials. But basically that's what we're doing. Just sitting and walking, sitting and walking. There is a great power in the simplicity of the form. Because by not engaging in a lot of distractions, by not distracting ourselves or engaging in unnecessary activities, we really begin to see how much is going on inside. There's a whole big world inside of us, inside our bodies, inside our minds. When we don't distract ourselves externally, and the whole form of the retreat is to support that undistractedness. It allows us to take a very deep look. Now, in some way, it's like focusing a microscope on something so in order to see what would normally be a hidden reality where you need the high power of the microscope to see more subtle levels. So this is what we're doing in our practice. I'd like to read you something about training in attention. And this is a story told about the famous Swiss-born naturalist. His name is Louis Agassiz. You may have heard of him. He said that he intended to teach his students how to see, how to observe. So the initial interview at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when he or she would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. The student was instructed to look at the fish, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. So Samuel Scudder, who was one of his students, described the experience, this experience, as being one of the most memorable turning points of his life. So this is Scudder now, you know, speaking, his student. In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around looked it in the face, ghastly. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that this was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. 
I would draw the fish. And now with surprise I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and toward its close the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, Look at your fish. In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled. It was a legacy of inestimable value which he could not buy and with which he could not be parted. So if Scudder could do that with a dead fish. Can we do that with our lives? Can we bring that intensity and commitment of observation to our own minds, to our own bodies? I mean, this is our life that we're observing. So we start with the simplicity of the form. It's the most basic, just sit and walk. But then we take it a step further and we create within that a reference point for observation, a primary object of attention. So in sitting we use the breath, whether the in-out or the rise and fall. In walking we're using the feeling or sensation of the movement. That becomes our reference point, our primary object for observation. And we practice coming back to it again and again. It's like coming back to the dead fish. We just keep coming back, keep observing, keep looking, until we really begin to see it. Now, it's not uncommon for people in the first day or two or three, just as with Scudder, to get bored, to get frustrated, to get impatient. I've seen the breath. You know, I know what the breath is. They're all the same. You know, and we can begin to lose interest. It's helpful to reflect, I think, on the nature of the breath. Because each breath is sustaining our life. And this is not poetry. You know, this is not a metaphor. This is actually every breath is sustaining our life. I had a very uh, vivid experience of this recently because uh, my mother passed away quite, quite recently. And I was with her in the week before she died. She was very, very weak. She was just you know, lying in bed, 
could, could hardly move, but very lucid, right, until the end. And at different times she was having uh, difficulty breathing, and so I was really there, you know, just watching, and it was so clear and so obvious how each breath was life, you know, and how the difficulty when the when the breathing was hard and then the ease when it got easier and it was so powerful you know to see then when the breath stopped and life stopped so this is not an insignificant process that we're observing you know it's worthy of our investigation it's worthy of our attention and so we can bring a certain quality of interest and depth and uh, yeah, commitment to really understanding, well, what is this? And not, not thinking about it. It's not, it's not an intellectual understanding. It's just being with it over and over again. We keep coming back to it until it begins to reveal some of its mysteries. Now this training of the mind, the training of the mind, the training of coming back, of paying attention, has two important components. And again, all of this has to do with what I like to call the science of the mind, that aspect of understanding how it all works. These two components that I'll talk about the Buddha said, are the basis or the foundation for concentration. If we want to understand how concentration is developed, it's through these two factors that I'll talk about. They're important because they develop concentration, and as the Buddha said, it's concentration which is the gateway to wisdom. So it's, it's really the foundation of it all. The first of these factors is what's called aiming the mind. And in, in the Buddhist psychology, this aiming refers to that quality of the mind, or that force, or that factor in the mind, which is directing the mind to the object. There's a move there. There's a move where we can consciously, intentionally turn the attention to the object, whether it's the breath or a step. So what does this mean? What does aiming or turning the mind mean? When we sit and walk, and if we do that simply hoping or even have an initially strong intention to connect with the breath. But if that's all we have, how long is that going to last? Probably about three and a half seconds. Because as you see, I'm sure you've seen very clearly today, even if we have something of an intention to be with the breath at the beginning of a sitting, it doesn't last very long. So what this illustrates, 
is the meditative equivalent of the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not a scientist, but we did just have a retreat here for scientists. We had 195 scientists here a couple of weeks ago. And I ran this example by them and my understanding, and it got an okay. <laughs> so this is, this is legitimate. Okay, so the second law of thermodynamics uh, has to do with entropy, namely that systems tend to disorder. You know, if you have a system left to itself, it will tend to wind down. It will tend to disorder. So this is a scientific principle. And one explanation of this, which is very interesting, and which has a meditative equivalent, why do things tend to disorder? One explanation is because there are many more possibilities for things to be disordered than ordered. As an example, you throw an unbound volume of war and peace up in the air. What are the chances that it's going to fall down in proper sequence? Not very great, because there are many more possibilities for it to fall down in disarray, not in sequence, not in order. Likewise, there are so many places other than the breath that the mind can be. There are so many places other than the movement of a step that the mind can be, that left to its own devices, if we don't do anything, the mind is going to tend to disorder. It's going to tend to being lost because there are so many more possibilities for that to happen. So it takes a certain effort of intentionality to counter this move of mental entropy. We need to have a certain intention, a certain bring certain energy into the system so that we're aiming the attention with doing something. So we're actually aiming the attention so that it lands where we want it to land. Does this seem clear? It does not happen by itself. This is very important to understand because I think it's very common for us to come into the hall and sit down yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with the breath and then just hope it happens. That's not enough. That's not going to cut it. We have to develop this factor of mind of right aim. And it's something like, you know, just as we need to develop hand-eye coordination, you know, in, in that skill, we also need to develop mind-object coordination. So it's like, Throwing the dart of mindfulness at the dartboard, at the bullseye of the object. You know, we have to aim so that it lands correctly.
as we do this consciously, with each breath and with each step, something quite meaningful is learned. Because it gives us a very direct and immediate experience that we actually can train our minds. This is something we can do. If we do it with each breath, with each step, we take the moment to aim so our attention lands where we want it to land. We're actually connecting with the beginning of each breath, the beginning of each step. And we do that for one breath, one step. Oh, I can do this. That is the training. And it's, it gives us a confidence if we can do it for one breath, we can do it for one more, and one more, and one more. If we arouse the energy, if we have the intention, the volition to do this, to aim and re-aim with each breath, you will see how the power of concentration, of stability grows. Actually, maybe the one breath is too much. Forget that. Forget the one breath. Half a breath. Just half a breath. Just the in-breath. Aim for the in-breath. Connect. That's all. Just the half-breath. Then aim again on the out-breath. Okay, we can do that. It's like half-breath, we can certainly do. So this is the first the first component, the first aspect of right aim. The second component of concentration uh, we call sustaining the attention. Once we've aimed, and we've aimed the mind and re-aimed with each half-breath, so then we have the intention to sustain the attention for the duration of that half-breath. Again, this is something we need to do. We need to arouse that in the mind. First we aim, and then we have that intention to sustain the attention for the half-breath before the step. Sometimes we call this uh, the mind rubbing the object. You know, So there's that feeling of close contact as the breath or the step is unfolding. As we practice this, as we practice the right aim, as we practice the rubbing, the sustaining, slowly the mind begins to settle down. It does get more concentrated. The thoughts are still there, but they're less demanding. It's like they don't pull us away quite so forcefully or quite so often. And we begin to experience, even for short times, through the very simple exercise, just aiming and sustaining, half breath by half breath, we begin to experience, even for short times, a sense of a relief, you know, a certain sense of inner ease, a certain sense of inner peace. And then we find, at a certain point, that the aiming and sustaining starts happening by itself. 
As we build that momentum, it takes less and less effort to do it. So we've talked about meditation as a science of the mind. You know, that the mind, just like the physical world, follows certain laws. Law of cause and effect, the law of karma, the importance of motivation. We've talked about refining these qualities of right aiming, you know, and sustaining. Just so that we can see precisely and accurately what it is that's happening. Meditation is also more than the science of mind. As I mentioned this morning, it's also an art. And we need to begin to feel our way into what that means. Meditation as an art refers to the art of relationship. It's the art of true relationship to experience. Because even when we know very precisely and exactly and accurately what it is that's arising, still there can be many different ways we're relating to it. So the simple exactness and precision is essential, but it's not enough. We might be aware of what's happening, whether in meditation or just in our lives experience, our life experiences. And we might be with it with a simple, open acceptance. Or we could be experiencing things filled with our usual wants and aversions and judgments of others and self-judgments. This spring, in, in June, I was sitting a retreat with Saida Upandita at the Forest Refuge. And my job was, my yogi job was in the kitchen, a veggie chopper. Now yogi jobs are a great place to watch the mind. So many different things come up, you know, when we're doing our yogi jobs. So one day, the cooks gave us this big, pile of eggplants to slice. So I'm chopping away, and I'm not a great, that's an understatement, <laughs> I'm not any kind of cook, <laughs> not only. But I'm, I mean, it's not that difficult to slice eggplants. But it actually is quite difficult to get the slices even. You know, so I'm slicing away, and you know, I wanted to get it done, so to get to the sitting. But as the pile is growing, I see that my slices are widely uh, uneven. And so as I lay them in the pan, you know, one is low and one is high. <laughs> but I figured, well, it's probably going to be okay. They'll cover it with, you know, tomato sauce or whatever, and nobody will notice. So I was aware of you know, what my experience was. But there was a whole underground thing going on <laughs> I wasn't aware of till later. So I do the morning sitting, you know, waiting for lunch, expecting to see the eggplant parmesan or whatever was going to come out, and nothing, it wasn't served. So it was something else entirely. 
So I hmm, wonder what happened to the eggplant. So well, maybe they're saving it for tomorrow. The next day, lunch, no eggplant. And the third day, no eggplant. So then my mind, they didn't like how I sliced the eggplant. <laughs> they had to throw the pan out. I just, I was just totally spinning out about what a bad veggie chopper I was. And so finally, I just had to ask the cooks, you know, what happened to all that eggplant? Oh, we prepared it and just put it in the freezer for some time, you know, when we when we need it in the future. And it was just, you know, a very simple explanation. But meanwhile, my mind had gone on this whole long trip of self-judgment and evaluation and comparing myself to others. So the art of the practice has to do with how we're relating to the different things that are coming up in the mind. You know, are we caught by them? Are we identified? Are we lost? Are we pushing away? Are we open to them? There are a lot of different ways we can do the dance. How are we with the breath? You know, I think the breath is so simple. Just notice in the course of a day, do we want the breath to be a certain way? You know, do we want it nice and long and smooth and even and then get upset when it's not? Or are we impatient? You know, are we pulling the next breath in? Or are we bored? You know, where we're just not connecting out of boredom. This happens, boredom happens when we're not bringing our attention close to the object. There's, there's a kind of meditative disease, which I've mentioned in different retreats. I call it more or less mindfulness. You know, when we're kind of there, but not really there. And do you know that state? You know, you kind of know the breath is there, you kind of know you're taking a step, but not feeling it closely. Well, it's precisely in that place of more or less mindfulness that the mind gets bored, it gets restless, because we're not really connected. So that's another way of possible, another possible relationship. Sometimes we're too tight. You know, we're trying to hold on too tightly to it. Or we're kind of have a mental squint, you know, in an effort to kind of see more deeply. That also is not a skillful relationship. So there are a lot of nuances here, even with something as simple as the breath. You want to pay attention not only to what it is that you're feeling as precisely as possible, you know, through the aiming and sustaining, but you want to take a look at the relationship. How are you holding it when you're rubbing the object? You know, when you're rubbing the breath, are you rubbing it aggressively or are you rubbing it like you might rub the back or the tummy of a baby. You know, just so soft, so gentle, but the contact is there. So we need to look at this. This is the art of meditation. How are we holding things? How are we aware of them? How are we relating? Now a great help in this, of learning 
about the art of practice, a great help is in a general slowing down. And slowing down doesn't mean holding ourselves back. It's not like we're trying to rein in a a galloping horse. That's not the move. Slowing down means relaxing back into the moment, settling back. So there's a quality of ease in it, not a quality of strain. When we slow down in this way, when we allow ourselves to just settle back into our bodies and letting our movements come out of the moment rather than being pulled you know, by the future, then all of, our ac- all of our actions, they actually become like an art form. Are you familiar at all with the Japanese tea ceremony? Have you ever seen it or know about it? You know, it's like everything is done with this tremendous, every movement is done slowly and with precision and care and beauty. There's just this amazing grace in it coming out of the attentive care. Well, you can make your whole day a Japanese tea ceremony. You know, the gift of the retreat is you, you don't have anything else to do. There might be times when you need to, you know, move a little more quickly. You're online and there are 50 people behind you or you're doing your yogi job. It may need to be done a little more quickly. But mostly, take the gift of the time and the space just to be settled back into yourself. What happens is that we learn not to privilege one activity over another. And so we don't overlook some actions thinking, oh, well, this isn't isn't as important as something else. It's like the whole day becomes an unfolding just of each moment, what's happening now? Can I be with this movement? Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, the... Famous artist, painter. Uh, she said something very beautiful about this with reference to seeing. But it really refers to everything, to hearing, to moving. She said, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. And of course she was, she saw flowers. Still, in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. So if we want to really make a friend of the small moments of our experience, the small things, we need to take time. How do you go from sitting to standing? How do you reach for a door? How do you put your shoes on? How do you take a shower? You know, how do you eat? Just all the small things through the day. And as Mark said, I think this morning, this does not have to be done with grimness. You can really do it with this great place of delight. It's like 
just settle into ourselves and take the time to fully feel things. This allows for the art of the practice to flower. I want to mention one last aspect of this art of meditation. And it's something I learned a lot about in my practice in Asia, dealing with noise. You know, a lot of the monasteries I practiced, they were just, there was a lot of noise around. Um, Often loudspeakers from the neighboring villages or construction noise. So this was just part of what we had to deal with. But one time I went into Saida Upandita, just saying how much noise there was. And, and all he asked me was, did you note it? And I looked at him, <laughs> you know, and I thought he was just trying to make the best of a bad situation. But that's not what he was doing. He was actually pointing to a very profound understanding, which I want to emphasize because this understanding has the potential to transform not only our meditation practice, but to transform our lives. There was something very deep in his simple comment, did you note it? What he was saying, what he was pointing out, was that from the perspective of awareness, from the perspective of mindfulness, it doesn't matter what arises, and it doesn't matter how it presents itself. Just like a mirror doesn't choose what to reflect, the nature of the mind is simply to know. The nature of the mind is simply to know what's ever arising. It can know everything equally. There's loud noise, fine. There's soft noise, fine. It's sweet. It's abrasive. The mind simply knows. We're with the breath, however it is. The mind simply knows. When we connect with this fundamental nature of awareness, it's very freeing. Because then we give up our need to control We're not so busy looking for one thing rather than another, but rather settling back and just being open and intimate with whatever it is. This understanding will become more and more clear throughout the retreat. It's a very important aspect of the Dharma. From the perspective of awareness, it doesn't matter what's arising, because the nature of the awareness is simply to know. And we can know anything. And we can know it precisely and accurately, and we can know it in a true relationship. This is the combination, this is the joining together of the science and art of meditation.
So I'd just like to close with one teaching from one of the great Tibetan masters, I think of the 14th or 13th century. His name is Tsongkhapa. And he was in some way the founder of the lineage of the Dalai Lama. Um, So he said, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. This human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your aspiration and make use of every day and night to achieve it. It's this reflection on the preciousness. In in the teachings it's called the preciousness, the reflection on the preciousness of this human birth, of this human form, and what's possible for us, and the preciousness of this time on retreat. It's it's a rare, it's a rare gift uh, in our lives to be able to do this. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Just you can practice in these few minutes that aiming the mind with each half breath, aiming and then re-aiming and then re-aiming. So aim and then sustain. Rub the awareness on the breath. Aim again and sustain for each half breath. When the mind wanders, just aim again.
This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Insight Meditation Society on February 4, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.